Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. So we're going to be starting a, a series today on 1 Thessalonians. I don't know how many of you have had this experience where you're reading through the Bible, you're reading through some scripture, and you're reading a verse that maybe you've read before uh, a number of times, and all of a sudden as you read it, you kind of see something new in it. You know, it's kind of like there's a fresh take that you get from that. And I think that's kind of a common experience because, you know, Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active. And it's, it's not like reading Shakespeare or Dostoevsky or some, something like that. It's something that the Holy Spirit is continually working in different ways in our hearts, right? So the other week, I'm, I'm asking Doug, I'm going to say, what's the next sermon series? You know, so I can start thinking about that. And he said, let's do First Thessalonians. And I said, you know what? We did that fairly recently. I, and I, and uh, we actually did it about three years ago. Uh, yeah, so I, I said, Doug, I got a sermon here from uh, uh, June 1st, or 2019. He said, yeah, but I think, the whole, I think we're supposed to be doing this book right now. I said, okay. So, you know, my daughter, uh, Rachel, out in Flagstaff, she said that a couple weeks ago, their pastor preached the same sermon that he preached one year ago. She remembered all the illustrations and everything. <laughs> But this is not going to be the same one. That I, <laughs> um, it was like in praying about this and thinking about this, the Lord gave me uh, something I think that's, that's new and fresh here that comes from this word that I think is going to be real helpful for us today. So Paul's writing this letter, and it's typical of these letters where you sign them first, right, back in the day. And he goes, this letter's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we're writing to the church in Thessalonica to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. Now, the Thessalonica uh, today is actually called Thessaloniki. I think it was called Thessalonica in those days because of the Roman influence, because it was part of the Roman Empire. But it's based, the city's called Thessaloniki, and it's actually the second biggest city in Greece. Um, if you were today to say, hey, I'm going to take a road trip from Thessaloniki to Kiev, which I would not recommend. But that would be like a 1,000 miles. It would be like us driving from Cleveland here to Tampa. You know, so that's where it is situated in, in southern Europe. And today it's the second biggest city in Greece, and it's like a major uh, commerce, place of commerce. Um, you can see like influences of the Romans as well as a modern city right there on the, on the waterfront on the Aegean Sea. Big tourist uh, attraction right there. And when Paul actually came to the city for the first time and he started sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, it was, uh, he had a tough time. Uh, the, the church there that he planted was planted in a climate of intimidation and suppression. And I'm going to take you back to Acts chapter 17, where Luke recounts what happened when they first came to the city and the circumstances where Paul actually planted his church. So this is uh, Acts 17. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service 
And for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. You know, you can see they weren't killing the uh, followers of Jesus. They weren't killing people from this new church. But they're certainly trying to intimidate them, right? So they're dragging them off there. They're trying to get him in trouble with the civil authorities. Um, there's this climate of suppression where it's like they're going, like, we don't want to hear this good news. We don't want to hear this message. We're going to try to shut it down. And I think, you know, it, the more I thought about this is that you and I, are living in a modern-day Thessalonica. Maybe that's why uh, the Holy Spirit was you know, speaking to Doug about, hey, we need to do this book again just to see how these people handle the situation where they're living in a, a climate of intimidation against believers, uh, and also suppression, attempted suppression of this good news. And I'll just give you three things that happened in this last week. So first of all, the case of Joseph Kennedy, he's an assistant football coach at Bremerton High School, or he was, in Washington State. His case is coming up uh, before the Supreme Court either Monday or Tuesday of this week. He was fired because he was praying um, after the game. And so what would happen was he was in the Marines for 18 years, and then he became this, this football coach. And he was like, wow, this is great. I get this opportunity to really, like, deal with these young people and impact them in their lives. And he made this promise to God. He said, I'm going to pray after every game and just thank you. Thank you for what, you know, this opportunity that you've given me. And so after the game and fans are all leaving and stuff, he would go to the 50-yard line and he would, he would pray silently and just thank the Lord for this. Well, what happened was some of his players said, hey, we want to be part of this too. So they came in and started praying. Well, then some players from the other teams would join them. And then people from the, the crowd say, hey, we, we want part of this too. Well, school officials didn't like that, you know, and they say, hey, you got to stop this. This is like a religious exercise in our government school here and stuff. And he's going, look, at I, I, I'm just praying silently. I think I've got a right to do that. And he went back down and so they fired him. So this he brought suit about this, and um, this has worked its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, again, it's like there was, seemed to be a kind of a need to somehow suppress what was going on there. I was thinking about this um, this week, where I read this in the news here, that the United States is going to scrap the conscience rule for health care workers. Um, 
Health and Human Services confirmed this. So my daughter is a nurse in Flagstaff, and as a believing woman, she's going, I, I refuse to be a part of performing abortions at Flagstaff Medical Center. Well, under the previous administration, there was this conscience rule invoked by Health and Human Services that said she couldn't be required to do this if it went against her conscience, and she could opt out. But Health and Human Services now is saying, we're going to scrap that rule. And again, this is going to put her in a position where she could be, you know, her job could be threatened by this thing. And of course, she would quit under those kind of circumstances. But again, there's this climate of intimidation. And then, I don't know if you, if you saw this, like on the internet, where there was this, um, this group of Christians on a plane on the Easter weekend, and they got up and sang um, that song that we just sang before we went to break. You know, how great is our God? And um, so I'll give you the backstory of this. He is, his name is uh, Jack Jens, and he's with Kingdom Realm Ministries. He's ahead of this, he's an Australian guy. And they were, his ministry, they were doing ministry work at the border of Ukraine. So they had spent several weeks there working with people who were fleeing the Ukraine and helping these people out, doing, doing this kind of mercy ministry. So they're concluding this on Easter, and they're flying back to Germany to catch their flight back to Australia, where they live. And they said, you know, it's Easter weekend, we just got to praise the Lord here, right? So they asked the flight attendants, they said, would it be okay now that we're 30,000 feet up there to sing a song of praise? Flight attendants went, cool, we'll check with the captain. So they went to the captain, or the flight attendants. The captain said, this would be great. So the captain announced that this was going to occur. People in the, in the plane cheered. And so they got up and they sang that song for about three minutes. And it was just well-received on the plane. But when this got on the Internet back here in the States, people on social media were not thrilled, you know, so... It was funny. I got, a, I got a kick out of this. The Church of Satan issued a, issued a statement saying this is terrorism, you know, which we, so we could accuse Jill of that kind of stuff for choosing these, this kind of music here, although I asked her to do it. And uh, so I'm, I'm complicit in this terrorism. And um, there were people going like, if I'd been on that plane, I w-, they, wouldn't, they didn't say they'd jump, but they said, I would have demanded a refund when we came back. It's so inappropriate. People are getting all mad about this back here in the States. And I'm thinking, this is a, we live in a climate, let's be honest, where it's, there's a lot of hostility to the good news. People just don't want to hear it. They're going, keep it to yourself. Shut up. You know, this isn't, this isn't your business right here. So how are we going to live? And uh, Paul, having planted this church, knowing there's this hostility here, I think after he left there, he's sweating it out. You know, in, in a small way, I, I can really relate to this because at, at Lutheran West, you know, during the year, there, there will be kids who are coming to the Lord and then they'll, they'll graduate and I'll go like, oh, I wonder how they're going to do, you know, when they're off at Miami University or, or wherever, you know, Ohio State or wherever they're going. And I'm going like, are they going to keep going or are they just going to drift away? I mean, we've all seen people that get excited about the gospel, and then they kind of fade, right? Uh, and so sometimes they'll come back and visit, and I'll go like, 
So have you joined a fellowship, you know, down there at Ohio State? You know, and sometimes they'll go like, yeah, we got inv- I got involved with this. And it's really good. And I'm going, oh, I'm so happy. And I'm so relieved. They're, they're, they're carrying it out. They're walking with the Lord. And then there'll be other times they'll go like, you know, the kid will go like, yeah, I've been pretty busy, you know, and I've been this and that. And you could see they've, they've just kind of lost interest, you know, and it's, it's so sad. So Paul has been, I think, you know, he's got some spies that are, you know, have been traveling through there, and he's found out the church is doing well. These people are hanging in there. So he writes this letter telling them how excited he is. And he says in verse 2, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived with when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. He's going like, wow, you're working hard for the Lord and you're excited and it's like people are hearing about you. This is great. And then Paul, in the next few verses, reveals what I think is the secret to their success. And I think this is the secret to living in a negative culture. So follow this. This is verse 8. He says, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And I think this is the key that, you know, it's like, okay, there are things in this culture that promise they're going to bring me the answers. There are things I, I can lean on that, that are going to really, you know, give me a reason to wake up in the morning, but they let us down. These are the dead idols, right? And they are going like, we're done with that, and we're going to, be, we're going to put it all on Jesus Christ. We're going to put our faith in him and our trust in him, and he is going to be our foundation. Now, I wanted to show you an example of what that looks like in modern times. So I, I get there's this documentary uh, that I, I use in my ethics class, and it's the, the true story of this guy named Michael Morton. So Morton was a guy who was convicted of uh, murdering his wife, except he didn't do it. It was like the, it turned out that the DA had suppressed some vital evidence, and he was like railroaded, And he ends up in prison for 25 years for a crime he did not commit and would never in his... I mean, he loved his wife, right? It's terrible. So during this time, he is just stripped of everything that he'd ever relied on. You know, his his family, his job, his, his freedom. Just like life is just like nothing. And the one thing that he's got going is this, that he's got a son who is just three years old at the time of the crime. 
And that son visits him every six months, a short visit, but he looks forward to that. It's the one thing that keeps him going. But as the son gets older, his son starts thinking, you know what, dad killed my mom. I mean, that's the story that was told, right? And so he tells his dad, he says, I'm not coming back. This is when I'm not visiting. Not only that, but I'm going to be adopted into another family, and I'm going to, like, re- reject your name. And this was just crushing. And I want to show you what happened after that. With all the bad things that had happened, uh, my wife's murder, my arrest and conviction, my life sentence, all the deaths in my family, the failed appeals, the DNA snafus, um, all of that um, didn't do me in. I thought I was pretty tough and I could take it. But um, when I lost him, that's what broke me. I remember him telling me the day Eric was going to change his name and Michael was crushed. I'd never felt so um, empty, bankrupt, um, just completely at a loss. Then I did something completely out of character as I cried out to God. And when I did that, I got nothing. Silence, aching, just dead nothing. Until about 10 days, a couple weeks later, I don't know. Uh, It was a real average day in prison. Uh, It was gray, repetitive. I was in my cell, and my cell partner was asleep, and it was the usual time when I went to bed. It was just another routine day, and I killed the TV, and I figured I would turn off the lamp, grab my headphones, put them on, go up and down the radio dial a couple times, call it a night, and there's a classical station out of Houston I picked up. Something very unusual. I heard some harp music playing, which uh, I don't know if I'd ever heard on the radio before. Without any sort of preamble, no premonition, no hint, just just like that. Um, I was bathed in this wonderful, beautiful golden light. couldn't see anything but this golden light. Uh, I felt like I was floating on my bunk. I felt this limitless, boundless love focused in right at me. Not at the world, not at humanity, at me. doubt. I didn't have to uh, analyze it. I didn't have to ask the questions. I was in the presence of God. It was so uh, exciting, 
and affirming and encouraging. Like you wanted to sing. It was just... uh, It's like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life. It was pure bliss. I woke up listening to my alarm. Beep, 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 like it did every morning. I sat up my bunk and everything was there. My, my, my headphones were hanging on the hook. I didn't remember doing that. My alarm was obviously set. I didn't recall doing that. My radio was turned off. I don't re- just. And I was thinking about not what was that, because I knew what it was, but why? Why would that happen? Why me? I'm not a not a prophet, I'm not a role model, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a guy in prison. And I came to realize that the simplest thing was that I had cried out to God. I had, you know, hey, you know, I got nothing here, you know, show me something. I, I... And all that happened was I got an answer, he showed me something. I said my life changed in this room. In that jail, in that prison cell on Ramsey One, my world changed. You know, he said, I thought it was pretty tough. And we think we got it together, don't we? And we got this, we got that, these safety nets, we got these things we can rely on. But it wasn't until he called out to God. And that's what I think the Thessalonian people did. You know, they called out to God and the Lord made himself known to them. And they realized that they were loved. And now they had a real foundation that they could stand on. And that's been my experience. And I, I, I hope that's been yours too. And you know, what's, what's kind of cool is then you can see how that is life-changing. And Paul recounts what happened with these Thessalonian uh, Christians, what turning to the living and true God started to look like in their lives. And this is, this is our story too, isn't it? Because he talks about, he remembers their work produced by faith. Their work produced by faith. You know, I remember reading this verse before I became a believer from John 14, where Jesus talked to his disciples uh, the night before he went to the cross, and he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I always thought, that's scary. How does that, how does that work? I mean, he didn't say you should. He says, you will. You will. I thought, impossible. It's, it's crazy, you know? I mean, if you think about it, the, the night before, you know, the, before this, right after that, when Jesus said that, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And he's praying, and he talks to his disciples, and he says, you guys need to pray because a lot of bad stuff's coming down. You need to pray. And what do they do? They all fall asleep. But I was reading something from Thomas More this week, uh, something that he wrote before he was executed. And he, sa- he said, you know what? Not all the disciples fell asleep. There was one who stayed awake. You know who he was? It was Judas, right? And More said this. He said, you know, intrinsically... It's a whole lot more exciting to think about doing evil than to think about doing good. He said, that's why we're so prayerless many times, right? 
Uh, and so in our natural selves, it's, it's really hard to want to wanna do what's good. And we just don't seem to have the power. If you look at this picture right here, this actual picture that she kind of staged, but this is Ksenia Ovchinikova. She's a freelance artist in Russia. And in this Lenten time, she had decided she was going to fast. Uh, meats, no meats. And then she saw a commercial or an ad for McDonald's. And she said, when I saw the advertising banner, I could not help myself. I visited McDonald's and bought a cheeseburger. I asked the court to compensate me for moral damage in the amount of 1,000 rubles. She is suing McDonald's for, for making her break the fast. Now, I don't know how you feel about McDonald's. I, I don't think an ad for McDonald's would like cause me to fall off the wagon. You know what I'm saying? I'm going, whatever. But you can see how weak we are, right? It's like we're helpless on our own to do the right thing. By the way, I should tell you, 1,000 rubles is the equivalent of $14. So, I mean, God bless this woman. She's not trying to get rich off of McDonald's, but she's just appalled at the fact of this moral failure on her part, right? But this is where we're at. Without the Lord, we're just walking in the world. We just can't get it done, you know? It's just like we fail and we fail and we fail. And even when we succeed, we're not too spectacular. I mean, I just took this picture when I was walking in the neighborhood, and here's somebody with one of these signs that say, I stand with Ukraine. Hey, God bless you for, for that. But what does that mean? I, mean? I always wonder about that. Does that mean you're, like, sending some of your money to help people who are refugees or who are in trouble? Does that mean you're trying to get some more arms and weapons for them? Or, like, what does that mean? I mean or are you just putting up a sign to kind of signal your virtue, you know? And I think so many times the good that we get done is basically kind of like a good visual show or, you know, make ourselves feel better by having some kind of righteous sign, but how deep does it go? But without the Lord, that's about as far as we can go, right? But these Thessalonians had turned to the living God. And when you turn to the living God, you can do stuff like this. This is uh, the guy on the inset there on the right. His name Patrick Vaccarella. Uh, Patrick, when he was 18 years old, he had this kind of fast car, right? What he loved to do was he loved to burn rubber. Maybe when you were a kid, you did this too, you know, you're peeling out and you're laying rubber down there, ruining your tires and creating a lot of smoke. So he got a lot of attention for this. And one day he was going by the Mountain Scouts Christmas tree sale that they have every year down in Vestavia Hills, Alabama, uh, to raise money for 11 scout packs, right? It's a volunteer, uh, you know, it's a volunteer thing, a fundraiser, it's a good thing. The cops just happen to be around the corner, and they arrest him. So he goes before the judge, and the judge says, I'm going to give you a choice, young man. He says, you can either pay a hefty fine, or you can volunteer for a couple weeks at the Christmas tree sale. So he thinks it over. He goes, I'll volunteer at the Christmas tree sale. So when he does this, he's going, oh, grr, I've got to do this. But he meets the people who, who run this thing. And they're a Christian family. And they're sweet people. And he just goes, I love these people here. And as he hangs out with them, it begins to change his life. You know, it's like he comes in contact here with the gospel for the first time. That was 34 years ago. And he's been doing it ever since. And he loves it. In fact, what he does is, when this Christmas tree sale is on every year, he goes there to volunteer, and he takes time off of his paying job to do it. 
You know, he just loves doing it. And it's like Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, you know? And it, it, ta- it talks in there also about your labor prompted by love. Prompted by love. That's the source of it, isn't it? Loving the Lord. Um, my daughter, Sarah, I've mentioned this to you. She's got that talk show on St. Louis Public Radio. This week she had this guy on there, Dr. Greg Johnson. And uh, he was telling his story. And he said, I, I was listening to this, and he said, you know, uh, until I was like, went to college, I was, he called himself a gay atheist. He just hated God, you know. And then he went to college and he said, I fell in love with Jesus. And what that did was it didn't change his desires. What it did was it changed his lifestyle. And he became a celibate Christian. And for the last 20 years, he's lived that celibate life and he's a pastor of a Presbyterian church down there in St. Louis. And he takes some guff from people in his denomination who don't understand that whole thing. But you know what? When he was on a radio, the hostility was all coming from the other side. You know, people were going, I can't believe that you're living a celibate life. That's terrible. That's inauthentic. That's dishonest. That's hurtful that you're doing that. See, people don't understand that love for the Lord can change your life and, and, and get you to the point where you're making sacrifices, laying it all down for him. And I think of this guy, too, Zaini Abd al-Kays, who grew up in, in the Middle East as a Muslim. And he, uh, you know, he had read the Quran. And if you read the Quran, it says that Jews are dogs and pigs. You know? And he was taught to hate Jews. And he was also taught to hate Christians. His grandmother said, you've got to hate these people. And he said, I prayed for the death and destruction of Jews and Christians, the atheists who were unclean, equal to pigs and dogs, and not to be touched. But then he came to America. And when he came to America, there was a Christian family that befriended his Muslim family. And they arranged for them to get a car. They put them up in housing. And one of the, the, the head of that household there came over to their house and, and when, as they were helping this Muslim family, and they said, can I pray for you? And they said, okay. And, they, and this Christian man prayed that this Muslim household would be blessed. And he was like stunned. And this, through a a series of events, led him to read the New Testament. And when he read the New Testament, he said, I fell in love with the character of Jesus. And when I put my trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, pigs and dogs became brothers and sisters. You know, that love that comes when we, you know, become followers of Jesus is not only a love for God that causes us to sacrifice, but it's a love for our fellow believers, a love for each other. It makes us want to come to church on a Sunday morning when it's beautiful day outside because we just like being with brothers and sisters that we love whose you know, family membership we just celebrated before when we went to communion. And then finally, he says, we always thank God for your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When Michael Morton Uh, his life changed. He said one of the things that happened was he thought, well, if I'm going to stay here in prison the rest of my life, I'm okay with that. He had that endurance that comes, inspired by his hope in Christ. And he said, kind of looking up to the ceiling, he said, well, if if he wants to get me out of here, he's going to have to do it. He spent another 15 years there. But uh, he, he talks a little bit about this. I got a 46 second clip that I wanted to show you where he wraps up his story. 
And so let me, let me show that to you right now. Now, everything is different for me. Um, the conundrums of life, the philosophical paradoxes, the metaphysical problems, uh, I feel like I get it now. I understand suffering and unfairness. Um, I can't think of anything better to receive than that. Uh, I'm good with this. This, this, this world, this, what's happened to me, where I'm going, what I'm doing. Uh, and I know three little simple things now because of that. One, God exists. Two, he's wise. He's smarter than I am. And three, he loves me. And if you know those three things, what's your problem? I love that. You know, three things he said. God is real. If God is real, that means there's someone much bigger than we are to walk with us through whatever troubles that we've got, whether they're as terrible as the Thessalonian church experienced or maybe just the troubles that you and I go through day to day in life. And that God is wise, which means I don't have to know why these things are happening. Because I know that someone who's much wiser than I am has this all under control. And third, that he loves me. That this is all going to work out. I've got that hope that is all in the end for a good purpose because of his love that he's working out in my life. You know, as, as believers, we can now look forward just like they did in Thessalonica. And I just wanted to close with this. This is a picture of Willie Carson, who's one of the great English jockeys, uh, racing at Pontefract, which is one of the big racetracks in England. And he was telling a story about how he was at this one race, racing this horse, and he's in first place. It's a long race. And he's on the rail, and he's ready to win this thing. And, he's, and all of a sudden, he realizes there's somebody very close to him coming up from behind. So he spurs the horse on, he spurs it on, and he manages to win, and then he turns around and there's nobody there. It's like he, he was well ahead, and he realizes that what he thought was a race, a, a, a horse behind him was actually his own shadow. And he was racing his shadow. And isn't that the way that so many times we live our lives? We're looking back. We're looking in the past. We're looking at junk that we did when, you know, that just embarrassed us or that it was so shameful, it was so bad, we're going, how can I ever atone for this? How can I ever make up for this? Or we look at stuff that's happened to us where we've been victimized. I mean, our politicians do this all the time, right? And they're complaining about what happened. And, and it's like the Lord saying, hey, let's, let's go forward now. This has all been taken care of. It's all been atoned for. And the last verse of the chapter says this. And they speak of how you, Thessalonians, he said, are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. You and I, like the Thessalonians, can be people who look forward, knowing that even when Jesus returns, we have nothing to fear. It's not going to be a time of the terrors of the coming judgment. Jesus paid for that price when he atoned for you and me. And so we, like they, we can look forward to this time. We can be a forward-looking people, putting the past and all its disappointments and all of our failures behind us, moving into the future. Just like the Thessalonians, so will we be. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for bringing us in 
to this plan of yours. And we thank you for our brothers and sisters who've long ago gone to be with you from Thessalonica. And Lord, I want to pray this morning that our lives would also be seen uh, as uh, people who are doing your work, people who are living in that love and doing the deeds impelled by that, and also people of hope, a community of hope that has that endurance to put up with whatever's going to come our way. And Lord, I'm kind of thinking it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so we're just trusting you to walk us through this. And um, we just want to pray these things in the name of the one who made it all possible, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.